There's not enough information. Where are these floodways going? What farmland are we talking about? Tonight, preventing the next flood, but why the proposals for Abbotsford are raising more questions than they answer. Plus, open for business, closed to crime. How Chinatown-style security may be adopted beyond its borders. And it's been uh, rated as probably carcinogenic by some agencies. But that's not the only concern one group is voicing about the aerial spraying of a controversial herbicide in B.C. You're watching Global B.C. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. I'm Colleen Christie. Nitu is on assignment. Nearly five months have passed since catastrophic flooding overwhelmed the Sumas Prairie in Abbotsford. Tomorrow, Abbotsford City Council will be presented with four options to deal with future floods. But as Grace Key reports, for some who live and work in the flood zone, the plans don't hold water. It's a Sunday afternoon on the Sherman Dairy Farm. They haven't had a day off since the floodwaters hit the Sumas Prairie in November. Now Heidi has some uncertainty about Abbotsford's four options to mitigate the flood risk. I feel like they need to look at where the water's coming from and how we can prevent that water from coming here. If it wasn't for that water, we wouldn't have flooded nearly as bad as we did. Option one, permanent repairs for Sumas Dyke, upgrades for Barrowtown Pump Station, $209 million. Option two adds a new Sumas River Pump Station, $1.3 billion. Option three and four meet flood protection guidelines, adding the relocation and creation of new dikes, designated floodways, and controlled overflows, each more than $2.4 billion. But one expert says it's a vulnerable landscape affected by four different rivers, and the Nooksack will flood again. We need to start looking at innovative ways of storing um, surface peak flow on a temporary basis in agricultural land which doesn't affect infrastructure. And we can do that, but that means we'll have to move some of the farm infrastructure and we're going to have to actually have a compensation system for the farmers because they're going to lose a little, maybe one year of production. And uh, to me, that's the only way we can cope. Development up the Sumas Mountain, compacted agricultural soil, a glacier snow and rainfall dominated river, and climate change all exacerbate the situation. So we need to start thinking about emergency response systems because we're not going to build all these farms at higher elevation. We have to pay for all the repairs and to get everybody back on track. And now we have to pay for infrastructure so that it doesn't happen again. Residents and businesses can share their feedback. A decision will be made in late spring. Grace Key, Global News. BC's police watchdog is investigating after a man died during an encounter with RCMP in Campbell River. The incident began shortly before noon on Saturday when the Independent Investigations Office says police responded to a theft and weapon complaint at the River Sportsman's store. RCMP reported an altercation between the suspect and police near the intersection of North Island Highway and Park Road. Shots were fired by police and the suspect was struck. He died en route to hospital, but the cause of his death has not been determined. The province's police watchdog deployed investigators to Campbell River. The coroner is also investigating. 
It was reported that uh, there may have been weapons taken from the store. He may have been in possession of weapons when police responded. That, of course, is a very important part of our investigation. So whether he came in with one, he took one, that type of thing is exactly what we're looking at. Any member of the public who may have seen anything um, or has any information in this matter, be it eyewitness testimony, video they may have on their dash cam or on their phone or be aware of or have in their store. And if we haven't spoken to you, please contact us. The IIO is asking anyone with information on the incident to call their toll-free witness line or reach out through their website. Charges have been laid in connection to a shooting in Surrey. Surrey RCMP responded to a report of a man shot inside a home in Newton Friday afternoon. He was taken to hospital where he died from his injuries. He's now been identified as 48-year-old Christopher Raymond Hartle. Police arrested two other suspects shortly after. And today, 40-year-old Darren Ellis Scott was charged with one count of second-degree murder. Mounties believe the shooting is an isolated incident and not gang-related. We're anticipating some important COVID news for BC this week. Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry joins us with more. Keith, what are we expecting? Yeah, it's going to be a busy week, or at least a busy Tuesday, when we're going to get a number of uh, updates on a number of fronts from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. Uh, as the sixth wave crashes over jurisdictions around the world, a reminder, we're not out of this pandemic by any means. So on Tuesday, we expect to get an update on the fourth dose, uh, so second booster dose, if you will. Uh, again, uh, the people at the front of the line in terms of who goes first are people in long-term care. Long-term care patients are going to be the first people to get that second booster dose, likely as early as later this month or made six months after their, uh, their third dose. And then we proceed on an age basis. Also, we're going to get an update sometime this week, probably Tuesday again, on the vaccination rates for health professionals. These are people who don't work in hospitals where it's already mandatory requirement. So we're talking dentists, chiropractors, about 20 are different professions that fall into this category. And again, we're going to get, uh, uh, I think, a reminder that the vaccine card requirements are expected to end on Friday, April 8th. That was the plan announced a few weeks ago. Again, we should get an update from Dr. Bonnie Henry on that front as well and Health Minister Adrian Dix. Tomorrow, of course, we're going to get three days worth of reporting calling. It'll be interesting to see whether our daily case numbers continue to go up on average as the positivity rate continues to climb or whether our hospitalizations remain stable and don't go up. It is That is happening in other jurisdictions that are associated with the sixth wave. Hasn't quite happened in B.C. just yet. Will be interesting to see. Thanks so much, Keith. A warning to some Nexus cardholders now that the COVID-19 testing requirements at the border have been lifted. Lineups have returned to the Canada-U.S. border now that the mandatory test is no longer required. For most of the past two years, travelers with expired Nexus cards found have been uh, able to go through that lane because the renewal process had been largely halted due to the pandemic. That has been the experience of Allie Hayden. She owns and operates the International Marketplace in Point Roberts, but lives in Skagit County and regularly has to go through four border crossings daily. That all changed for her last week when a Canadian border official at the Boundary Bay crossing seized her expired card. I do have a passport and, you know, I'll, I'll still be able to go up. But now that everybody can go without testing, my big concern is now without the nexus, um, me and my employees are stuck in the regular lines that can sometimes be really, really long, especially this time of year. 
So my employees are going to tack on three, maybe four hours to their work days. I, I'm trying not to take it personal. Like I said, I, I tried to do everything the way we're supposed to. But w- even though we're doing the right things, we're still being penalized. And that's where we, we get frustrated. Hayton's two previously scheduled interviews to renew her Nexus card were canceled due to the pandemic. On Saturday, she was finally able to book a new interview for mid-May, six weeks away. As Vancouver police deal with a spike in business break-ins during the pandemic, one neighborhood was shattered by the same kind of crime more than two decades ago. Back then, Chinatown became a fortress of sorts, and as Kristen Robinson explains, other communities may follow its lead. Every morning they come up across Chinatown, where the BIA says 80% of stores have rolling shutters or metal draw gates. It hasn't always been like this in Chinatown. When Forum Home Appliances opened in the late 80s, Ross Lamb says East Pender was one of the busiest blocks in Vancouver, second only to Robson and Thurlow for shoulder-to-shoulder foot traffic. Since then, uh, Chinatown's changed, and we've kind of had the change with it. Even with beat cops walking the streets in the late 90s, Chinatown was hit with repeated break-ins and smashed windows. They were paying for broken glass almost every night, so I used to go to all those break-ins and broken glass and uniform. To shut the door on crime, Lamb and other merchants installed roll-up gates and shutters because it was cheaper than routinely replacing glass. It's a fortress. Chinatown is really fortified over the last 20 years. Retired VPD officer Doug Spencer sees Chinatown as a bellwether for business security in the city. Broken windows isn't really too much of an issue in Chinatown anymore because everybody has a gate. In downtown Vancouver, police say commercial break-and-enters with broken glass increased 24% between 2019 and 2021. Spencer says it could force more businesses to roll down. It worked in Chinatown, right? So they they got to do it to stay afloat, for sure. The, the price of uh, glass and the repair and everything, it'll wipe you out. Without more mental health and treatment options for those struggling... It just, it's going to perpetuate and it's getting worse and worse. He says shattered businesses could lead to a more shuttered city. Kristen Robinson, Global News. A plea tonight to help find a stolen Central Caribou search and rescue truck. Williams Lake RCMP say this newer model fire engine red Dodge Ram emergency vehicle with BC license plate RH7960 was stolen this weekend. The specialized truck with the distinctive logo was taken from the Caribou Search and Rescue building on Mackenzie Avenue. The theft means the team has lost important life-saving equipment. If you spot the vehicle, do not approach, but instead call 911 or Crime Stoppers. A lower mainland visual artist says a Punjabi radio host's apology for comments he made is just the first step that's needed. Jag Nagra first called out Harjinder Thind for his comments. Thind told his listeners pregnant women were delivering babies at a local hospital and leaving them to be put up for adoption. Friday morning, Thin told listeners he will do better to be open to diverse voices in the future. But Nagra is concerned the apology was delivered in English, while the original comments were in Punjabi, meaning there could be a language barrier for the broader community.
And at the end of the day, an apology, uh, you know, it's just words. Um, what I hope to see is actual, um, you know, actionable change that they're taking at the station, um, whether it's sensitivity to how they talk about women's issues, um, you know, uh, addressing the misogyny that has aired for so long on their station. So um, I, I'm not going to be satisfied with just an apology and then it never gets touched on or no changes are being made. I hope that there will be accountability. It is wet here on the south coast. In fact, the rainfall warning is now in effect for parts of Metro Vancouver and Howe Sound. Officials closed Grouse Mountain Park for the day because of heavy rain and strong winds in the forecast. Howe Sound, Coquitlam, Maple Ridge, north and west Vancouver are expected to be battered with rain. 50 to 75 centimeters, millimeters rather, of rain could fall by Monday morning. Homeowners are asked to clear catch basins to avoid localized flooding. A sea of umbrellas and other rain gear in downtown Vancouver today. Elsewhere in the province, snow is predicted for several mountain passes and highways. Kasia Badurka will have the full forecast, including how long it will take for the storm to blow through, coming up in just a few minutes. The Canadian bureaucratic red tape that's stalling another Ukrainian refugee from coming here. Meanwhile, owners of a Vancouver bakery welcome family from the war-torn homeland. And this. People with their hands and with their legs tied up with bullet holes at the back of their head. The horrific imagery prompting international accusations of war crimes at the hands of Russian troops. To the war in Ukraine and a warning about the disturbing imagery and details in today's coverage in Bucha, recently retaken by Ukraine after Russian forces pulled back from areas near Kyiv, civilians have been found executed, some with their hands bound. World leaders say it's evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Ukraine's foreign affairs minister calls it a deliberate massacre, saying Russia is trying to eliminate as many Ukrainians as they can. The horrific images are being shared as peace talks are set to resume between Ukraine and Russia. But as Global's Abigail Beeman reports, confidence that Russia will negotiate in good faith is low. More shocking images emerge of civilians slain in the streets of regions around the capital recaptured by Ukraine. Ukraine's head prosecutor said 410 bodies were found in towns near Kyiv. People with their hands and with their legs tied up and with shots, with bullet holes at the back of their heads. So they were clearly, they were clearly civilians and they were executed. Russia is uh, worse than ISIS in the, in the scale and the ruthlessness of the crimes committed. Swift international condemnation. Canada's prime minister and the foreign minister who is about to leave for Europe tweeted about the senseless murder of innocent civilians, saying Canada will support investigations into war crimes to bring those responsible to justice. Unfortunately, we should expect that this is going to be the first of many horrible revelations. Russia's defense ministry denied killing civilians Sunday, calling the footage a staged performance by Ukraine. Russia is taking responsibility for these missile strikes in Odessa, destroying an oil refinery and fuel storage facilities. Its retreat from Kyiv is seen more as a repositioning, strengthening their presence in the south and east. That includes the besieged port city of Mariupol, cut off from food and electricity for weeks and key to a land bridge between Crimea and Russia. They're just holding out by the skin of their teeth 
And this is um, an area that Russia is slowly advancing on and using medieval type siege warfare. And so the, um, the Ukrainian forces definitely need reinforcement there. And contested areas of the Donbass, which Russia wants to take entirely. Until the Russians play out that scenario, see what is possible to achieve in the Donbass, I'm not sure that we should feel confident that the Russians are in a place where they are going to engage in good faith in the negotiations. Russia's chief negotiator said peace talks are set to resume Monday, but also that things have not progressed far enough for any top-level meetings between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, contrary to what Ukraine's negotiator said Saturday. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Ottawa. Here in Vancouver, accusations of atrocities in Ukraine prompted dozens to stage a lie-in outside the art gallery this afternoon. People feeling helpless to stop the carnage, but wanting to show their solidarity with those suffering in the war zone. It is very difficult, especially for those uh, that have friends, family in Ukraine. Every day we're glued to our news uh, reading phone calls with family if they pick up because as you know in certain parts of Ukraine there's no connection so it's definitely difficult I can't I know today is Sunday but I can tell you that today is 39th day of war uh, and that's how we live our day by day life a BC business owner is running into roadblocks as she tries to bring a Ukrainian woman to Canada to work at her Pilates studio I still hear air sirens which are not there but still, I'm getting better. Linda Millard is in regular contact with 27-year-old Anastasia, who is staying in Poland temporarily after fleeing Ukraine. Millard and her Tawasin Pilates studio clients raised more than $8,000 to sponsor the Ukrainian refugee. The group plans to support Anastasia with a full-time job as a Pilates instructor, a home, travel funding, food and clothing. Anastasia's application was approved. She has a vaccine card and valid passport, so Millard bought her a flight for April 7th. But while Anastasia can enter Canada without a visa, they've been told she cannot board the plane without a visitor or work visa, which means her trip could be delayed for at least a month. So she has an airline ticket and uh, she has completed her Kuwait application, her medical exam and her biometrics. What we don't have is the visa. And the airline at this point is stating that she needs to have the visa to board the plane. When she arrives in Canada, I have been told through Canada Immigration that they're giving visas outright at the border. And what we're trying to figure out is will the airplane let her board so that she can get here safely? Yes, it's frustrating because now I will need to stay in Warsaw for I don't know how much. I'm in cage of bureaucracy. So I would ask them to at least provide either similar information, not to mislead, uh, or easing the procedures. Due to privacy laws, Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada says it cannot comment on specific cases. It's been a family reunion for a Vancouver woman who used her bakery to help fundraise for humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. As Kamal Karamali reports, she's now been able to breathe a little easier now that her sister and nephew are out of harm's way. This is a meeting these Ukrainian sisters feared would never happen. I'm very grateful 
because um, um, she saved us. I didn't save her. Reunited after eight years apart. I still, I still don't believe. believe. <laughs> and I still the feeling that like uh, when we were driving from the airport and I was kind of like pinching myself like to check it like whether or not it's true. Irina living in Vancouver, a successful restaurant owner. But her sister Tatiana and her 11-year-old son Nikita in Kiev when the war broke out. The fear, the scare were the only uh, feeling. Uh, not uh, about ourselves as, uh, as about parents, but about our child. We first met Irina in late February, desperate for news of her family. My sister, my nephew. Frantic to bring them to Canada. I don't know if they like at this moment they alive. At the same time, her sister and her family were racing to get out of war-torn Ukraine. Tatiana and Nikita eventually made it to Poland. And just over a week ago, Canada approved their visitor status. The mother and son arriving Monday, Nikita meeting his cousin for the very first time. Wow, the Now relishing every moment in their new Canadian home. I feel that uh, I'm safe and it was uh, just tears of happiness. Tatiana now helps her sister run her restaurant, but the grind won't stop. Both hope more support comes pouring in for their family still abroad, including for Tatiana's husband still caught in the war. For now, grateful they at least have each other. We love each other. Yes, and I'm happy that we are together. I will be always um, next, next to you. These sisters promise jobs will be waiting for any Ukrainian refugee that makes their way to Vancouver. Kamal Karamali, Global News. The Pope's apology was just the first step. Now what archivists heading to Rome this spring hope to find in the Vatican. And they call it toxic and damaging how a BC group is trying to stop the aerial spraying of a controversial defoliant. On the heels of the Pope's apology for the Catholic Church's role in Canada's residential school system, archivists will head to Rome this spring to sort through what could be a treasure trove of documents. A delegation of Métis leaders visited the Vatican Museums last week, hoping to document any items that may belong to their people. While there may not be records related to residential schools in the Vatican, the church holds a trove of historical artifacts. Representatives from the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation hope to visit Rome next month to gather more information from an archive run by the missionary oblates of Mary Immaculate. I believe it would probably be correspondence, um, potentially some annual reports. Um, I doubt I'd find any kind of, you know, the Codex Historicus, the annual or the daily journal um, documentation. I wouldn't expect to find that there. Um, but I do think the correspondence could be of value. Um, things like baptismal records or any kind of vital event um, documentation that probably order might have kept. Again, that will remain to be seen. The Oblates operated 48 residential schools in Canada, including the Kamloops Sindian Residential School. It use, it's used to stop the growth of certain kinds of vegetation following clear cuts. Well, now, one group says the mass aerial spraying of the defoliant glyphosate in B.C. is neither necessary nor safe. And as Paul Johnson reports, they want it to stop. This is video shot by anti-spray activists who say these choppers were spraying the herbicide glyphosate on forest clear-cuts south of Prince George about 10 years ago. 
Spraying operations like these continue in B.C. to this day and are carried out in support of the timber industry. Glyphosate is a powerful herbicide that many would know as the active ingredient in Roundup. They use these sprays to mitigate the, the what they call competitive growth and competitive vegetation. I mean, I hope we get Ronnie Dean Harris and Angelina Hopkins-Rose have been researching a recent permit application that, if approved, would allow for aerial and ground spraying to happen on Crown land over a massive territory stretching from Hope to Squamish. They have many concerns. The effects on people are still inconclusive. It's been uh, rated as probably carcinogenic by some agencies. But for us, the real uh, effects in nature uh, can be catastrophic. Both are of indigenous descent and worry about the effect on the berries and traditional medicines they gather. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved picking berries. So when I heard that they were targeting native broadleaf plant species, especially like all my favorite berries, thimbleberries, salmon berries, elderberries, huckleberries, I was really scared. The issue came up in the legislature last week when BC Green MLA Adam Olson questioned the forest minister about the new plan for the South Coast. He told Global News his questions were not answered adequately and he'll be pressing the issue in the coming days. As for the government, it's the Ministry of the Environment that would have to approve the plan, and they didn't respond in time for this report. One other concern activists have is how difficult they say it is to find out accurate information about the spring. There's no legal requirement by these agencies to inform the public. We're not allowed to see the maps, detailed maps or schedules of spraying sites. If you want to see those things, you have to file a Freedom of Information Act Paul Johnson, Global News. Whether you're a cat person or not, it's a story you'll want to see. She's always been such a great cat. You don't, you don't want to lose this cat. But that's exactly what happened. Now, five years later, she's back. Kiki's incredible journey when we come back. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. The runaway cat that found its way home three provinces and five years later. The amazing story right after Kasha's forecast. Kasha. Thanks, Colleen, and a good evening to you. Boy, have we had active weather and much more to come. It was windy this morning in Boundary Bay. Thanks to Peter Skur for that. And boy, has it been windy also through the Strait of Georgia. 80-kilometer-per-hour wind gusts clocked in some of the weather stations over there. So the weather picture is unfolding according to plan. Wind warnings in effect, rainfall warnings in effect. In the red, some areas are doubling up on warnings. You'll note West Vancouver Island as well as East Vancouver Island. We're looking at very strong gusty conditions as well as heavy amounts of rain, 100 millimeters set to come to this particular region. The wind swells or the waves are expected to be anywhere between 8 and 10 meters high along beaches along West Vancouver for tomorrow. So it's going to be dangerous along the beach. I would avoid that. We have a new weather warning in place for South Metro Vancouver. Also 70 to 90 kilometer per hour winds coming in from the south expected for tonight through the overnight easing tomorrow morning. A lot of rain. Oh, and then 
that weather warning over there for the Fraser Canyon, that's a winter storm warning. Look how much snow we're expecting. So anywhere from tonight through your Tuesday, a good 25 to 40 centimeters of snow is set to come to the Cogahala Hope to Merit, especially near the summit level as snow levels are quite high. But also Highway 3, Paulson Summit to Kootenai Pass will be picking up copious amounts of snow. Metro Vancouver, here's the plan. This evening, rain heavy at times, 6 degrees, also hovering around 6 tomorrow. And the rain tapers to just a chance of rain tomorrow morning. Then in the afternoon, rain makes a comeback and we could even get a thunderstorm. Anytime there's a potential for thunderstorms, there's also a risk of hail. So a heads up there. A high stream fl flow advisory remains in effect for much of the south coast for obvious reasons. All that rainfall and the snow melt. This means that there is a potential for minor flooding, especially at low-lying areas. And tomorrow, the rivers should be peaking. Okay, so here's a look at the system. A fair amount of action in behind that. So this is all the moisture that's still set to come to the region, to the south coast. For tomorrow, it looks like this. So we've got a sun cloud mix in the far northeast of the province. It clears for you along the north coast. Prince George, it's a chance of flurries changing to showers in the afternoon. Also on the active side over here, but we will get some showers in the morning in the Okanagan, then clearing in the afternoon. And the possibility of thunderstorms is also there for the southeast of the province. And that case is in there for us as well in Metro Vancouver. Still very unsettled, windy near the Strait of Georgia. And there's your long range for Metro Vancouver. Looks good. Thanks, Kasia. After five years, an Edmonton family had given up hope of ever seeing their cat again. She'd run away and they had moved to Ontario. But earlier this month, the family got a call they never expected. Global's Sarah Reed has the remarkable story. Our little Kiki. That's Kiki now, at home with her family in Ontario. But a month ago, this was Kiki, wandering the streets of Edmonton. She's always been such a great cat. You don't, you don't want to lose this cat. But five years ago, while Elizabeth's family was living in Edmonton, Kiki escaped. We posted signs. We tried everything to try and get her back. We went door to door. Following an exhaustive year-long search, Elizabeth and her family moved to Ontario. But she hung on to a tiny bit of hope, knowing Kiki was microchipped. My husband was saying, you need to change your phone number to an Ontario number. I was like... I can't. What if one day, you know, what if one day I get that phone call? That one day did come. The cat that Elizabeth lost. She was coming from that area over there. Is the same one that Hannah found. I was home, so I would see her. I would actually see her come and she was eating and she would come back like three times a day for the food. Guessing a cat that hungry likely didn't have a home. Hannah called for help. Kiki was trapped and taken to the vet. Five years later, I got a call from the veterinarian saying, oh, we have Kiki. I just started sobbing. I couldn't believe it. I was in shock. What a trooper. Like, she's so strong living out there for that long. Although Kiki the cat didn't come back the very next day, five years and one plane ride later, the reunion is just as sweet. She's going to have a great life now. She's going to be spoiled rotten. She doesn't seem to really be too interested in the door anymore, so I don't think she's going anywhere. Because after fending for herself, Kiki now has a new appreciation for just how good she has it. Sarah Reed, Global News. A story I know Barry can appreciate. But the cat, the cat will never admit that, that he has it good. Didn't know they were looking for him the whole time. Oblivious. <laughs> well, uh, Canucks are on the ice right now in overtime against Vegas. Got to win, pretty much. Uh, it's yeah. Down to the 
down to the brass tacks. They got to do it now. So we'll have highlights of that coming up. And Tiger Woods might play the Masters. I know. If you can believe it this Love week. It. So we'll have more on that. Too. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Barry. If you've ever wanted to pack it all up and move to a small town, you are not alone. A lot of people are doing just that. And the strain on those small towns is beginning to show. That story next. A big city for the small town. It's a trend that's been happening in B.C. for decades, but even more so with the pandemic. Now, a new study finds many smaller communities are struggling with the influx. And as Taya Fast reports, they're coming up short, particularly on housing. It seems more and more British Columbians are leaving the hustle and bustle of urban areas in favor of the more peaceful lifestyle small towns have to offer. According to a recent study, migration from metropolitan areas into smaller communities has increased since 2015. The data shows that uh, there's been a, you know, a, an uptick um, in People moving to uh, town communities that are outside of census metropolitan areas and census agglomerations. In the report from researchers from the University of Northern BC and the University of British Columbia shows how this trend is impacting smaller communities. And we started looking at this because we started to hear from community leaders and others that housing was actually having a, a real impact on economic um, development potential and community development potential in non-metropolitan British Columbia. Moore says one of the many reasons people are leaving metropolitan areas for smaller communities is the cost of living, but increased demand for housing often drives prices up for everyone. One of, uh, of course, is that, you know, when people think about um, purchasing a home in, in uh, non-metropolitan British Columbia, it is much less expensive to purchase a home in non-metropolitan British Columbia than in the metropolitan area. According to the report, high migration can also impact economic growth and quality of life in small towns, and that can be positive. It's wonderful for communities. Of course, you know, communities, when they have new people move in, um, you know, that is, that's a boost to the economy of that community. The trend is also impacted by the pandemic, which showed employees it is possible to work from home, negating the need to live in a city. TFS Global News. Barry has sports next, including Tiger Woods at the Masters and later. It was expected we were just going to scrape the paint off of it and then just paint it, put it back. But three years later and a lot of hard work, why this fishing boat is now in a BC museum and why it may look familiar to you. Coming up. Support those living with ALS through Project Hope. Help the ALS Society of BC reach their goal of raising $20 million to establish a world-class ALS center at UBC. This project aims to bring hope to ALS patients and fulfill the dream of finding a cure. Head to BC Place for the HSBC Canada Sevens Tournament. Don't miss another year of high-intensity Sevens rugby paired with the spectacle of entertainment and the ultimate costume party. Info at CanadaSevens.com. For RBC, I'm Michael Newman. If you want to know, it's on the hub. If you want to show, it's on the hub. If you want to go, it's on the Global BC Community Hub. Navigate your now. Barry's here now with sports, and there's a slim chance that we could still make it, right? Just Well, you sound pretty optimistic. Slim. <laughs> getting worse by the day, unfortunately. Thanks, Colleen. The uh, Canucks are down to their final 13 games. They pretty much 
have to win almost all of them just to have a chance to get into the playoffs. It is a long shot at best, slim some would say, but it's been done before. And this team has shown a lot of fight under Bruce Boudreau. Tonight, a must win against one of the teams they are chasing, the Vegas Golden Knights. Golden Knights seven points up on the Canucks when the day began. They have played one more game than Vancouver. Vegas gets the first good chance, but Thatcher Demko stops Nick Waugh. Point blank. Canucks another slow start. Just 43 first period goals for Vancouver. Fused in the NHL. Vegas does strike first. Off the faceoff. Alex Petrangelo beating Demko. Roofs at short side. Out shooting the Canucks 10-1 at that point and up 1-0. Playing catch up again. It's not the way to play in the NHL. It gets worse. Jonathan Marcheseau skates onto the loose puck and fires it past Demko. 2-0. Vegas. Late first. Canucks shorthanded, but it's Bo Horvat on the breakaway. Robin Leonard, though, will shut down the five-hole. Vegas very happy to have their number one goalie back. Second period. Canucks power play. Brock Besser on the doorstep, but can't jam it in. It gets worse for Besser. It gets tangled up on this rare Elias Pettersson hit. Besser looks like he hurt his shoulder. Left the game, but he did return. The Canucks down 2-0 after two. Third period. Canucks finally get one. It's Oliver ekman Larson with the initial shot. That's blocked, but he stays with it and then finds J.T. Miller for the one-timer. 29th of the season for J.T. is 200th career point as a Canuck. It's 2-1. Vancouver's got some life. Then on the power play, this is bizarre. Vegas wins the draw, but their D-man, Alec Martinez, tips it between Leonard's pads. Horvat gets credit, 2-2. We go to overtime. Maybe the hockey gods are with the Canucks. Both teams had chances, but it's the kid from Aldergrove, Shea Theodore, who gets the game winner. 3-2 final. Canucks get a point, but Vegas gets two, and now their lead is eight over Vancouver with just 12 to go. Also tonight, Dallas Stars in Seattle. Stars have won three straight road games this week to go seven points up now on the Canucks. First period, Stars on the power play, but the former Canuck, Jared McCann, with his 25th. It's a shorthanded goal, doing his old team a favor. It's 1-0 after one. Crack it. Oilers and Ducks from Anaheim. Leon Dreisaitl, a goal short of 50, a point short of 100 this year. First period, Connor McDavid enters the zone with speed, as he often does, finds Tyson Berry. He fires it past John Gibson, 1-0 Oilers. That assist, point number 103 for McDavid. Tops in the NHL, of course. Then on a power play, it's Barry to McDavid this time, and he slings home the wrister. That's number 40 for Connor, 2-0 Oilers, and they keep coming in the first. Ryan Nugent Hopkins with the screen wrister, 3-0 Oilers after one, and they're up 4-0 now late in the second. And some scores from the AHL, Abbotsford uh, Canucks beating Laval 2-1 in the Western League. Vancouver Giants slumping just before playoff time. Six straight losses now. They fall to Spokane. Kamloops in overtime over Prince George. NBA tonight, Kyle Lowry's much-anticipated return to Toronto. First time since being traded to Miami in the offseason. He's the most beloved Raptor of all time. A very warm, heartfelt welcome back from the fans. The Grote, the greatest Raptor of all time. Lowry's still a big part of that Heat offense. He will hit the tough off-balance shot here. But Lowry's understudy all those years in Toronto. Fred Van Vliet also motivated. Fittingly, Van Vliet with this three-pointer breaks Lowry's Raptors single-season record for threes with number 239. Fred with 17 in the first. Toronto led by six after one. And then Van Vliet versus Lowry. Freddie with the basket and a big smile for his big brother, as he calls him. Wraps by 10 at the half. Tight ball game in the fourth. 
And it's Lowry with the three. He had 16 points and 10 assists. And it's the Miami Heat and Kyle Lowry who get the win, 114-109. The Masters starts Thursday at Augusta National, and there is a chance Tiger Woods will play the tournament. Tiger tweeted out today that he's at Augusta, and it will be, quote, a game-time decision. It's been 14 months since Tiger's serious car crash where he had multiple fractures in his leg. The problem for Tiger is walking the very hilly Augusta layout. His golf game seems to be pretty strong, but does he have the stamina to walk for four rounds? He'll make that decision in the coming days, and wouldn't that be something to see Tiger make yet another epic comeback after what he's been through, and where else would it be than at Augusta? The final round of the Valero Texas Open from San Antonio. Abbotsford's Adam Hadwin with a big charge on the back nine. Short birdie putt at the short par 417th. Got him to nine under. And then after a nice bunker shot on the finishing hole, another short birdie for Adam as he finished with eight birdies on his round, including five in his last seven holes. He finished tied for fourth at 10 under. A nice payday, 344000 for Adam. Roger Sloan finished tied 53rd. Now American J.J. Spawn looking for his first ever PGA Tour victory. And on the ninth, from the rough, just trying to get it close. Oh, this is close. It's in the hole for a birdie. He's got the lead. And then on 18, Spawn will tap in for the par and finishes at 13 under a two-shot win, his first ever victory, and that also gets him a spot at the Masters next week where hopefully he will see Tiger Woods play as well. Men's World Curling from Las Vegas. Canada's Brad Gushu looking to go to 3-0, taking on the Netherlands. Canada down 5-2. They clawed their way back. After Gushu made a nice hit and roll to lie three, the Dutch needing a draw to the button with their last shot, but it's short. It's a steal of three for Canada, and they go on to win it 8-6, so Canada tops the standings at 3-0. The Whitecaps are feeling much better about themselves after getting their first win of the MLS season last night, 1-0 over visiting Sporting Kansas City. It was a very solid effort all around, and it was an extra special moment for the goal scorer. 23-year-old Ryan Raposo scored his first ever MLS goal, and his mom flew in from Hamilton and was in the stands to see it, a moment that Raposo has been dreaming about forever. If it came off the back of my head and I didn't mean to, I'll take it. A goal is a goal, and we won at the end of the day. But again, manifesting and picturing this exact moment, sitting in front of you guys saying these exact words for a very, very long time, maybe before I go to sleep every night. So, um, yeah, means the world to me. I'm happy that I I delayed the sub because I was thinking about, hey, he's getting tired, maybe he's not going to... Uh, I, I want to put Marcus, and then I, I luckily scored like a couple of minutes before he got off. So, uh, yeah, I'm ha- very happy for him. National Lacrosse League last night at Rogers Arena. Warriors and Albany Firewolves. Logan Schuss will score here to tie it 3-3 in the first, but the Warriors' offense went dry in the second quarter, maybe a bit fatigued after playing in Calgary Friday night where they lost in overtime as uh, the Firewolves take over from there. Charlie Kitchen with a pretty one. 11-sub in Albany wins for the Warriors now 6-9. and They are fifth in the West Division. And some great Fruit League baseball. Jays and Yankees from Dunedin. George Springer. Boy, a healthy George Springer for 162 can be a big difference for the Jays. A two-run homer, 7-5 the final. The Major League regular season begins this Friday. Jays will open at home to Texas. Toronto the favorite to win the American League by many baseball experts. It should be a fun year with the Blue Jays. And baseball season 
is coming. That's good to see. And I know a lot of fans across uh, Canada are big Blue Jay fans. So oh, for sure. They're expecting a lot from this team. They're so young and exciting. So we'll yeah. see what happens. Awesome. Also means summer's coming. Mm -hmm. I like that part, too. Thanks so much, Barry. The BC fishing boat immortalized on the $5 bill and now in a BC museum. That's next. As the blue knows, we have the BC P45. Both grace our currency, but unlike the dime schooner, the BC fishing vessel on our $5 bill still exists to this day, thanks to years of restoration work. And as Jay Durant shows us in tonight's This is BC, it's proudly on display in Campbell River. It looks as pristine now as it did when it was first built in 1927, but that wasn't the case when volunteers started to restore the BCP-45 in 2003. It took three years to finish. It was expected we were just going to scrape the paint off of it and then just paint it and put it back. The reality was that it was in terrible shape. It stands as a symbol of West Coast fishing, an enduring vessel that worked ocean waters for 69 years, undergoing many riggings and reconfigurations to stay relevant. And it had to do that in order to remain competitive because a lot of the newer boats were coming out in aluminum and those metals and fiberglasses, and it was tough. But it's also a tribute to all the crews. The late Oli Chikite was the last owner and skipper and passed down many stories, from living for weeks in its cramped quarters to surviving one particularly terrible storm. This boat here, which weighs, you know, at that time probably 40 tons, they, they waited till a big wave got behind them and they rode it right over the sandbar into the harbour. So that's the only way we would have survived this. It was photographer George Hunter's picture that was used on the $5 bill, just part of the boat's storied history. But where does it rank in terms of national renown? Of course, there's the Blue Nose, which also made currency fame starring on the Canadian dime. But the one on display now on the East Coast isn't the original, which gives BC's boat a rare distinction. What they have over there is not the original, it's a replica, because the Blue Nose actually was destroyed, I guess, in a storm. So we do have the original vessel. So I'd say probably number two in Canada. Jay Durant, Global News. And Jay is always looking for great BC story ideas. Email yours to thisisbc at globalnews.ca. That's a beautiful looking ship, hey? It is a very nice, uh, nice day. Well, not today is not a nice day. Yeah. It'd be a Gilligan's Island situation to be on the water today, but a great day on a sunny yeah. day. We'd love to take that. Love to take it out. That's the news hour for tonight. Thanks for joining us. We leave you tonight with images of our beautiful cherry blossoms. Look at those without the rain. Have a great night.